brute force. If it doesn't work, you're just not using enough. You're listening to Software Radio, special operations military news, and straight talk with the guys in the community. Rep.com on time, on target. Jack Murphy is back here. His last show was just me and Kurt Schroeder, which was uh, interesting. And just talked about the gun control stuff, really. But I know that the big thing right now for you is the Tiger Swan piece that you wrote. And you've been able to, like, take time with more of these investigative pieces lately, which is great. Yeah, yeah. Um, I've been working on that story for, you know, four or five weeks. Um, it's one of those stories that I would not have believed myself. You know, if somebody came to me, if, uh, if, you know, and this is my own, um, you know, initial bias, you know, if, if a protester had come to me or they prefer to be called water protectors, but whatever the case may be, if one of them had come to me and said, you know, look, you know, there's private security contractors coming into our camps and stirring things up and calling for violence and doing these sort of provocative actions, I wouldn't have believed them. I'd be like, nah, that's, that's nonsense. That didn't happen. Um, but it did happen. And um, the, the gist of the article is it's actually an incredibly complicated story, and you could write a, a book about it easily because there's just so much to it. But what happened was you had the, um, the protests kicking off. At some point, you had like 10,000 people in the, in the camps out at Standing Rock. Um, they were protesting the construction of the Dakota Access Pipeline, which run, runs through North Dakota, South Dakota, um, Iowa and in Illinois and uh, in North Dakota, it runs through or past the northern tip of the Standing Rock Indian Reservation. And there's uh, my article is about the private security contractors, so I'm not going to get too much into the environmentalism or the Native American land rights. All of those things are important conversations, but it's not the focus of what I wrote. Mm-hmm. Um, it's such a big issue. You have to focus, figure out where you're going to put your focus on. Yeah. Right, so. Um, as, as time went on, the, uh, the company energy transfer partners hired numerous different security contracting companies to run security for them. Uh, there was Layton, there was, uh, RGT, there was SRC, there was 10 code. Um, there's about a half dozen different security companies and they were all kind of hired to do different things or the same thing. Uh, but they were all doing their own thing at the same time. So there is no command and control element. There's no one really guiding things. The director of security for ETP, um, I believe, was really in over his head. And that's why they reached out to these different companies. At a certain point, what happened was, and this is very funny, another company called uh, Silverton was out there also. And what happened was that the security contractors 
were having off the record conversations with the FBI and they said, well, look, there's a bunch of Native Americans coming into this area. There's going to be a, um, a, a sort of a festival, a powwow going on. Um, there's no point to starting construction when all of these Indians are going to be here. I mean, that, it's like the worst time to start. Mm-hmm. So, and it's quite frankly, the, the plan was, you know, we're going to wait until they leave. Um, it's going to start getting colder. Winter's going to set in. A lot of protesters are going to leave. And then when everyone has turned their backs, we're going to basically shove the pipeline down their throat and start construction, right? And from, from their point of view, that was a sensible plan. The FBI agreed to it and uh, agreed with this assessment, and they started nudging ETP, the oil company, in this direction. They're like, hey, wait a little bit. Um, and they, they told them, look, the FBI doesn't have the assets. We don't have the ability to keep things under, you know, to protect you at this point. Just wait. Wait it out a little bit. Um, ETP agreed to this. And then for some reason, on September 2nd, they agreed um, and then changed their mind. And late at night, they said the next morning, you guys are going to be out there because we're going to start construction. And this resulted in um, was kind of there, there were some sort of iconic moments, I think, out at Standing Rock. And one of them was what unfolded that next day around noon when they got um, all the dog handlers out there who yeah. were not even supposed to be out there yet because they were unlicensed. Um, they went out there. Uh, the protesters broke down the fence. They started charging the, the dogs and the contractors. And then it gets into this big uh, tussle. Uh, you know, there's a wrestling match between a contractor and one of the protesters, the dogs, you know, the protesters taunted the dogs, the dogs bit some people, some of the dogs got hurt. It it was a big mess. And all of this came out in the international media and and the, we can look at it, you know, in a very pragmatic way, it was bad, but in, um, in regards to the optics, the pub, the PR aspect of it, it was really bad. I mean, this was a, this was a strategic blunder by the oil company. And at that point, they said, okay, we need additional help out here. Um, We need more security if we're going to go through with construction. And that was when Tiger Swan came on the scene. They reached out to Tiger Swan, brought them on in a very rapid fashion. It all came together in like five working days, um, which is, I don't want to say unprecedented, but that's very fast for a, a new contractor to be onboarded. And they had actual people hitting the ground in North Dakota, you know, within the week. Mm-hmm. Um. So, ostensibly, Tiger Swan was brought on just to run command and control to kind of harmonize the six or so other security uh, agencies, security contractor groups that were out there. Um, But it became a lot more than that. And Tiger Swan maintains to this day, and I had some back and forth with them just yesterday, uh, that they only ran command and control, that they were acting essentially as consultants on the ground in North Dakota. This is the biggest lie that they tell. I I would say this is the most blatant lie that they tell, and it's demonstrably false. Uh, They were not simply consultants. They were not simply um, running command and control, putting together PowerPoint slides. They were active participants in what was happening out there. They, and you have physical hard evidence. Of I it. do. I, I have. I have documents. I have the names. I've interviewed photographs. Photographs. I've interviewed the people involved. Um, there is. I, I mean, it's just. It's just not true. I mean, they they did send people into these camps to infiltrate the camps to run human, uh, what you would call human intelligence, in. Uh, now, there's a difference between what may have been in the contract, what they were hired to do, and what they actually did. Sure. And 
So I believe that there was a lot of things that happened that the oil company, ETP, was unaware of. And I think even um, I, I would I'll, I have some leeway for the CEO of Tiger Swan, uh, James Reese, um, who's a retired Delta Force officer. I think that he was not aware of everything that happened out there. And at a certain point, he was made aware that, hey, there are illegal activities being done, you know, in our name by our employees. And he didn't take action. Um, Namely, what happened was another uh, retired Delta Force sergeant major was the program manager for Tiger Swan out in North Dakota. And his name was John Porter. He was the CEO of Tiger Swan, uh, James Reese, it was his sergeant major. So it's an NCO officer relationship. Reese was the commander of First Troop, A Squadron, uh, and his sergeant major was John Porter. So Reese needed to turn to somebody he could trust to run this big oil contract. I mean, this was a big deal for the company. They were making a lot of money. At one point, I was told they were making a million dollars a month in pure profit. Um, so there's a lot of money in this thing, and uh, and John Porter was the go-to guy. Um, I left a, you know, I called John Porter yesterday morning. I uh, left a voicemail for him, and I, I haven't heard back from him. So mm-hmm. if, if you'd like to reach out and uh, and tell his side of the story, he can definitely um, feel welcome to do that. There are six sides to this story. There are actually more than six sides. So <laughs> I recognize that. But John Porter uh, did some things that he really shouldn't have been doing out there. Um, and he blatantly blew off the law many times. He was giving guys illegal orders, telling them, you know, to break the legs of protesters. Uh, he would get on the radio pretending to be a protester, saying, come down to the bridge. This is the North Bridge. Come down, fight us. You know, come fight the cops. They're shooting at us. Get down here. You know, all this kind of stuff. Um, he was sending uh, Tiger Swan employees to do so-called penetration tests, driving the pickups right through, in, right into the camps mm-hmm. just to antagonize the protesters. And for Porter, this was all uh, job security. It was to artificially extend the contract so that they could cash in for longer. And this is the this is the the main point of the article. There are some other creepy stuff that happened out there. Um, I'll tell you, for instance, uh, there was a certain point just as Tiger Swan came on the scene. A bunch of protesters, new protesters, quote unquote protesters, started showing up inside the camps. They were uh, calling for violence. They would say, let's, let's bring guns into the camps. Let's go shoot out the lights in the construction camps. Or, I'm sorry, the construction site. Let's, uh, let's do this. They're calling for violent action. They're calling for fighting the police. Now, the FBI, the Bureau of Land Management, and the JTTF were all ready inside the camps. They had their own infiltrators in there who were just sitting there watching. They're just keeping, they're just doing their job, keeping an eye out in case things turned ugly in the camps. They had some situational awareness. Um, And when these new people, these new protesters showed up calling for violence, they were like, okay, we need to run this down. Who are these people? So they ran their names. They started running pictures and they found that these people have no digital fingerprints whatsoever. They're not real people. Hmm. In, in a sense, they're operating under some some sort of a cover. Yeah. Um, this was disconcerting. So now we know they're not, and because of the deconfliction process that the FBI and agencies like the DEA, ATF, and so on, they use, they know these aren't federal agents, but they're also not protesters. So who are they? Where did they come from? Who put them in the camp? When asked... John Porter stated that these people were part of a special mission unit, quote unquote, that 
John Reese, Jim Reese had hired some sort of special security, additional security that was run laterally. And it was not being run by the Tiger Swan employees who were sent out to Dapple, sent out to North Dakota. It was, it was something else. It was a, like a separate parallel endeavor that was being run in a compartmentalized fashion. What I obtained was the pictures of two of these nameless individuals, and it's published in the story. Um, I have a feeling I know who they are, um, but the FBI was never able to identify them or other um, nameless so-called protesters who showed up in the camps trying to stir things up. Um, So there's a lot of creepy stuff that went down out there. And now Tiger Swan's official position is they deny everything I'm saying. Of course. They say this is absolutely false. Um, These statements are are made up. They must be so pissed at you for writing this. Well... Because you're the only one writing about it. Well, there is a a sort of uh, additional addendum that I didn't um, write in the article, um, and I don't want to get into it too much, but The Intercept wrote a a long piece about what happened at Standing Rock, and a lot of it is about Tiger Swan. Um, And they had a lot of documents leaked to them. This was before I was, way before I was ever working on the story. And, um, you know, The Intercept, I think they did an, I guess you could say, I think they did an admirable enough job with the documents that had been leaked to them, but they clearly didn't have any sources. And and so their story is kind of limited in that sense. But there was a big fallout because of that story. Um, Tiger Swan was expecting to get oil security contracts in Louisiana. And because the Intercept blasted all that stuff out, um, they lost that. Yeah, well, now I'm guessing if you Google Tiger Swan, your article will probably be one of the first things to pop up. Uh, I mean, people, I, I, I think the, uh, and I wrote the article partially as a warning. And I, I would say I wrote it as a warning to my peer group and, you know, even guys who are a little younger than I am, um, some of the young rangers out there, young Green Berets who come out of the services and they are going to go, um, they want to become private security contractors. And that's fine. But there are things they should be aware of and they should be um, aware of, you know, the legalities. They need to be very um, weary of security contracting um they need to have their contracts you know perhaps looked over by an attorney they need to take steps to protect themselves i think what happened with tiger swan was that because you had john porter and jim reese who were uh retired delta force guys that you had these young rangers come out of the service and they still psychologically they're still in this military hierarchy and you know these guys are their JSOC heroes and when someone like john porter comes to you he was a delta sergeant major and you were a sergeant or a corporal in ranger battalion and john porter tells you to do something you assume that this decision has been vetted, sure. that the person who's telling you this is legit, <laughs> you know, and because you're still mentally inside that military hierarchy. And guys need to understand, no, actually, they're not in the military anymore. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I, I had um, one conversation with a source and he was like, you know, when these corporations hire us to do things, they hire former special operations guys because they, uh, they think, you know, we're the dudes who will do anything to get the job done. But then the corporations expects you to do things that are totally illegal. It's like, yeah, we could do that when we were in uniform um, because we had the legal Title Ten authorities to do that. But now you're a civilian. So some of the things that they might expect you to do are, you know, kidnapping, false imprisonment. I mean, all sorts of yeah. <laughs> stuff that you, you absolutely can't do as a private citizen. 
So, um, and I, so I wrote this article and there's some commentary on this also as a warning to the other guys out there. And especially when they're doing these, uh, security contracts, um, you know, here in the United States, it, it, we, it was a very scary situation out at Standing Rock because we came very close to a situation that could have ended up like the Boston Massacre, where you had a bunch of, um, you know, former special operations guys shooting at protesters. I mean, we came close to having that happen on, a, on numerous occasions. And uh, that would have, it would have been, as I, I wrote in the article, would have been brother against brother in more ways than one because there was a ton of U.S. military veterans in the protest camps. There were a ton of U.S. military veterans working as private security contractors, and they were all Americans. And that thought just horrifies me, and it should horrify anybody. You know, and, and you know, part of the reason why I think a lot of people were willing to talk to me about this article is for that reason, is that they saw what happened out at Standing Rock, and it scared them. You know, what people like John Porter were doing, antagonizing the protesters, that was done with zero concern for what would have occurred if a protester shot and killed a police officer. You know, what if a protester took that shit seriously? And, and, you know, you know, it's like they escalate, you escalate. There's that kind of escalation matrix that happens. What happens when, when, you know, Tiger Swan goes and they, they go and stir things up and they piss everyone off. And so, and all it takes is one jackass protester to go and, you know, build a bomb or take a shot at somebody. You can't, you can't reverse those decisions. And these things were done with zero regard for, you know, the, the, the ultimate fallout that could have occurred from that. So the article, once again, is Tiger Swan, former Delta operator, sought to incite violence at the Dakota Access Pipeline. It's up on SoftRep.com. As most of you know by now, everything on SoftRep is now access to everybody. So check it out. Um, spread it around because we want to get the word out. Um, I have other things I want to talk about, but we can talk about it after the interview because right now we have Dwayne Evans standing by. So let's get right to him. So before we get to Dwayne Evans, author of Foxtrot and Kandahar, a memoir of a CIA officer in Afghanistan at the inception of America's longest war, wouldn't it be great to be pain-free like you used to feel? BioWave is the non-opioid effective way to block chronic or acute pain at the push of a button. That sounds great. Well, VVA recognized, VA prescribed, FDA cleared, and made in America. BioWave is used by more than 30 VAs and even professional sports teams. Actually, if you go to the website and you go to BioWave.com slash customers, you'll see all those professional sports teams. Um, pretty much every professional sports league out there, Olympians, SEAL Team 1, these are all people using BioWave, and you can check out some of the testimonials, too. That's at BioWave.com slash testimonials. And for the many veterans in the audience, you'll see the great stuff that they're doing at the VA, which is at BioWave.com slash VA. If you're a veteran or active military that needs help managing pain, go to BioWave.com and learn how to get treatment at no cost. So check out all the stuff on the site. Very informative BioWave.com, smarter pain blocking technology. And with that, let's get over to Dwayne Evans. So for the first time on SoftRep Radio is Dwayne Evans, a former CIA operations officer and Army Special Forces. 
Uh, I mean, Dwayne's biography is pretty intense. There's way more for me to list than just that. <laughs> but uh, his latest book is Foxtrot and Kandahar, a memoir of a CIA officer in Afghanistan and the inception of America's longest war. It's available now. And the thing that I noticed that's really unique about this book is that most of the subject matter written about Afghanistan deals with the North. And this book is particularly about Southern Afghanistan. So yeah, pleasure to have you on. Hey, thanks for having me. I really appreciate the opportunity to talk to you guys. Absolutely. Yeah, I mean, this is a really unique opportunity, and uh, I'm really glad that we could have you on. You know, we had um, just recently we had uh, Jack Devine on, and, you know, he told us that, you know, he thinks most people, most Americans, they understand that the CIA spies and, you know, they understand the concept of, you know, meeting in a cafe with somebody and getting some information. But the paramilitary aspect is really misunderstood. And that's exactly what your book is about. Um, so this is a really you know, unique opportunity to talk to somebody who is directly involved. And since the CIA cleared this book for publication, we can have that conversation. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, I actually listened to your interview with Jack Devine, and, uh, and he's, of course, a, a legend in the agency. So it was really interesting to, to hear him talk. And uh, I will, I will like to make, would like to make clear that I, although yeah, absolutely, uh, I was right involved in, in a, the paramil- what was essentially a paramilitary uh, operation. I technically am not a paramilitary officer. I'm actually, a, or mm-hmm. was, I should say, I'm former uh, a case officer or operations officer. Although most of the, the people that were there with me were, in fact, at least on the agency side, were, in fact, paramilitary officers. So uh, although I didn't go into the, I didn't leave special forces and go into the agency as a, as a paramilitary officer, I went as a operations officer. But this opportunity in Afghanistan, uh, this experience I had there was basically paramer- paramilitary in nature. I thought it was really interesting, and I'm sorry I haven't finished reading your book yet. I'm really looking forward to it. But you were talking about how, um, you know, it sounds like you were a pretty senior guy when you were selected for this for this mission. I mean, you talk about how you were the chief of station in South America, which is a, you know fairly you know high ranking position within the Central Intelligence Agency. Yeah, I was a, I was uh, you know, if you want to look at it in military terms, I was, I was probably um, what equivalent to what would be a lieutenant colonel. Like a battalion commander, yeah. I was 45 years old uh, when I I went to uh, Afghanistan. And, you know, in the book you talk about that, um, you know, I guess you you probably can't talk about a lot of the things you did in the agency prior to this, uh, what's in the book. But um, you talk about, you know, 9-11 happening just as you're coming off that assignment in South America. And, uh, you know, a lot of those experiences that so many of us lived through. I I was a senior in high school uh, when 9-11 happened. So some of the things you were talking about, going to pick your your son up at school and all those things. And the early assumptions we had that, you know, maybe it was just a small private plane that flew into the World Trade Center. I mean, those things were really um, resonated with me, I guess you could say. But I I guess... um, you know, if we could take it from there, if you want to talk a little bit about how all of this comes together. I mean, from a policy side, the White House decided, you know, OK, we're going to Afghanistan. Could you talk a little bit about how this paramilitary operation came together and how you were brought into it? Yeah, sure. Absolutely. Uh, yeah. And I also uh, further qualify a bit. It was it was the overall it was a counterterrorist operation, but it was pretty much carried out by paramilitary means. I guess that was the best way to, mm-hmm. to phrase it. I mean, the the, the goal was uh, when 9-11 happened, uh, it, it was pretty quickly apparent to everyone uh, that it was Al Qaeda who, who was behind this. I mean, we'd been getting warnings for for months uh, during 2001 that something big was coming. 
that we knew that was going to happen. I think there's a lot of books that have mentioned this. Uh, I didn't I didn't dwell on that in my book because I started with 9/11. But prior to 9/11, we've been getting a lot of warning signals that uh, uh, things were, were something was building, something was going to happen. We just didn't know exactly what. So uh, and we knew it was Al Qaeda that was behind those the, the, that, that intelligence we were reporting. Uh, so when the uh, you know 9/11 attacks happened, it was pretty quickly. I mean, I think most people, at least at the agency, I think assumed it was probably was uh, Al Qaeda behind 9/11 attacks, but uh, they still had to do due, due diligence and uh, and take a hard look at it before we conclusively drew that uh, you know made that conclusion. But uh, yeah, once once uh, I mean for me, I knew instantly when I, I was actually I think as I described in the book, I happened to be at the FBI headquarters, not CIA, mm-hmm. I was at FBI headquarters in the ops center when the 9/11 attacks went down, and uh, when I saw that second plane hit, like I think most people, uh, I, I knew immediately. Well, this was obviously we were under attack at that point, and I knew also that it was it was Al Qaeda behind it. There was no doubt in my mind that that's who, who our enemy uh, was, um, and who had perpetrated that attack. And so, um, the, the, you know, I started from that point on, from that moment on, uh, with the with with the assumption it was Al Qaeda. So uh, yeah, so my goal was to, I mean, I, the tr- attack was such a horrendous event to me. I mean, it was just the fact that, you know, 3,000 Americans died at the hands of, of Al Qaeda. I, and I was, I was lucky, I feel, I to this day feel myself to be highly privileged that I was in a position that I could actually do something about it. I know millions of Americans wanted to do some, something about it and you know, everything, and they did. They went out and gave blood and all this, but I was in a particularly unique position because I'd just come uh, <clears throat> from another assignment overseas. I was technically still assigned to the counterterrorist center. My my next assignment wasn't coming up until uh, November of uh, 2001. I was going to go, actually was going to go to the FBI to be a liaison officer from CIA to the liaison with uh, FBI. So I didn't really even have a job. I was on leave when uh, 9-11 happened. <laughs> so I was in a perfect position to uh, get involved in whatever the response was going to be. And that was that was my goal for the moment I saw the uh, the towers fall. I had to I had to be part of of our response. And it really wasn't I say this in the book and I'll say it now. It was not had nothing to do with wanting to uh, advance my career Had nothing to do with anything like that. I just wanted to do something to avenge what had happened uh, to our country. So I immediately went over to the agency, you know, volunteered, went in. There was no one there at the time. They had evacuated the building, so it took me a while to find anybody there. Um, and because uh, I drove right over from the FBI headquarters to, to the agency that morning and, uh, you know, said, hey, I'm on leave, but I want to come back from leave. I want to be part of whatever it is we're doing. The big question at that point within the agency was uh, who was going to actually take the lead on it within the agency? Was it going to be the uh, Near East South Asia Division? which had the territorial responsibility for Afghanistan, for intelligence operations in Afghanistan, any CIA or, or U.S. intelligence operations in Afghanistan, or was it going to be the counterterrorist center, uh, which had the uh, issue uh, mission of uh, countering terrorists? And so there were, there, we, we didn't know initially which way it was going to go, but it, ultimately what it did, it fell to the counterterrorist center, which I ha- happened to be technically on rotational assignment to my home division was in fact near East Division, but uh, I was at that moment I was on rotation to Counterterrorist Center, so that worked out perfectly for me. Uh, the only thing that didn't work out for me was I, I tried to get on the first team that was going out. That was the team headed up by Gary Schroen, 
really great officer who uh, actually was in a retirement program when 9-11 happened, and they asked him to come back and lead that first team in, a team we called the uh, uh, NAL team, the Northern Alliance Liaison Team. And uh, he did. He came back, and he formed that team up very quickly. And I just met him the day before they left, and I just didn't get on the team. It was there and gone before I, I really was able to hook up with him. So for me, uh, I then I just was assigned to what what was the Counter-Terrorist Center Special Operations Unit. That was a brand new unit. They stood up specifically to uh, conduct the, the Afghanistan counter-terrorist operation going into uh uh, just hopefully destroy al-Qaeda. So I, I was there with uh, the Special Operations Unit at headquarters trying to get on any future teams that were formed up. And the problem for me was I, I wasn't a paramilitary officer. And as I mentioned uh, earlier, most of the people going into Afghanistan in those early days were, in fact, paramilitary officers. There were a few others. There were some, of course, we had some uh, medical-type people going in from our Office of Medical Services. Uh, that were going in, but most of the people were paramilitary officers with a couple of, just a small number of people basically, by and large, from the Near East Division who either had language skills or some kind of special area expertise who were going in. So I was kind of just uh, trying to wait my time out and get on whatever team I could. And uh, and, that, and it flowed from there, and ultimately I was, I was dispatched along with a colleague of mine, a guy named Jimmy, I talked about in the book, a retired uh, Delta Force Sergeant Major, who was then now an agency officer, uh, he and I were sent out to um, to Islamabad to work with the uh, station out there on getting something going in southern Afghanistan. Because and this by this time we're into October now, late October, and uh, things have been going very well in the north. Uh, you know that we hooked up with the Northern Alliance. Uh, there were uh, special forces, CIA teams, uh, working with the Northern Alliance commanders. And they were having great success on the battlefield. They were coming down. In fact, ultimately, would would, would capture Kabul. They captured Kabul a few days before um, uh, our our first team went into the south. But nothing was going on in the south. Uh, Al Qaeda was still there. Uh, Taliban still pretty much ran things down there. So, and that was, as you know, the, the southern Afghanistan, particularly Kandahar, was uh, ground zero for the, the Taliban Taliban movement. Uh, so we had to get something going down there if we were going to be successful, and we couldn't use the Northern Alliance to go down into that part of the country simply because they were basically made up, made up primarily of Tajiks, and we didn't want a, a civil war to be created <laughs> by the Tajiks going into to, to what essentially Pashtun land. And, um, and so that's where um, we got into the South was with the idea we need to work with Pashtuns against the Taliban and al-Qaeda. And I'll, I'll stop here in case you yeah. want to. Yeah. Um, well, I guess from here, what I'd like to ask if if you could take us through um, the infiltration phase for Foxtrot and, you know, how your team came together, who these people were, and then, you know, how you infiltrated in Afghanistan. Absolutely. Uh, there, were, there were essentially seven teams that would go into Afghanistan, uh, CIA, combined CIA SF teams, Special Forces teams, and uh, five of those were up in the north with the Northern Alliance. Uh, and again, they were having great success up there. Uh, they just did a movie about one of those teams. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, the 12 Strong is about the team that was with Dostum. Uh, so, uh, but in the South, nothing's going on. So initially, the first team that was formed up was Echo Team. Echo Team was headed up by a guy named Greg, who was a senior um, CIA, CIA paramilitary officer. 
and uh, it was to work to work with Hamid Karzai. And uh, we actually, I was on that team initially before it deployed into Afghanistan from Pakistan. We, we actually had to go out and get Hamid Karzai and some of his tribal elders who were about ready to get overrun by the Taliban. And, and Greg and, uh, and Jimmy, the guy I went out with, I mentioned earlier, mm-hmm. and, a, and a, a SEAL team element flew in and got Karzai and his, uh, his tribal elders, brought him to Jacobabad, where we were uh, based at a PAC air base there. And began planning going back into Afghanistan to wage a military campaign, uh, starting in the Tarankot area, which is where Karzai was was from, and had a, had a lot of support. Well, uh, it turns out I got bumped from that team. I was the only non-paramilitary officer there. And the morning that we were supposed to deploy, the, uh, the overloaded the hel- helicopter didn't have enough lift capability for the the people we had and the equipment we had, and so we had to leave three people behind. Two SF guys were, were, were left behind, as and I was I was a stay behind guy for Echo Team. Made sense. I was not a paramilitary officer. I, I understood it. I hated the fact I wasn't yeah, left behind, but it, I understood Greg's decision. Um, so once they they took off, the plan was we would join them in a few days on a resupply flight. Well, it turns out the next day I was called back to Islamabad. Decision was made that we would form a second team to go into the south. This one would be designated Foxtrot Team. Hence my book title Foxtrot and Kandahar and our goal was to go was to link up with a, a, a Pashtun uh, leader the former governor of Kandahar a guy named uh, Gul Aga Shirzai and uh, link up with him and some of his fighters who were already in Kandahar province and then wage a campaign to get into Kandahar city so uh, the, the only problem was I didn't have uh, I did not have a paramilitary team with me. Usually a paramilitary team shows paramilitary team shows up with equipment to include you know obviously the weapons, but also combo gear, all the things you need to go into a tactical environment like this. I didn't have any of that, uh, and so initially it was just me and another officer there from uh, Islamabad, by the name of Mark, and then we managed to find a couple of. Uh, uh, special operations, uh, military special operations guys, army guys who were happened to be in Islamabad on a, on a special task force, and they had some of the combo gear we needed, and I was able to to um, approach them and they and ask them for one of their gear, <laughs> and they said, well, you can have our gear, but we have to come with it, which I totally understood that, and so uh, immediately we began trying to get the necessary coordinations done through DOD to get them on the team and deployed with us and it came through just in the nick of time oh, that's we only had five days to pull all this together to get together to deploy so uh turns out it was uh myself mark and these two uh, special operations guys uh gary and mike outstanding guys top of the line and uh we deployed into with with, with an sf team we got an sf team uh from fifth group uh, uh 583 that came down and joined us and we One of my, my old boss was on that ODA. <laughs> oh, seriously? Who yeah. was this? Kale. Kale. Okay, don't remember him. He Kale. would have he, he wouldn't he would not have been a team sergeant. He would have been one of the younger guys on the team back at that okay. time. Okay. Okay. Yeah, I I didn't get to know them all really, really well. I knew you got to know a couple of them, uh, uh, but the, most of them I didn't get to know that well. This was a pretty fast moving thing, by the way. And so we got it together, and uh, we infiltrated. What we did is uh, we were with at that air base in Pakistan was the uh, Air Force's uh, Special Ops Wing, and uh, they, they they had MH-53s, and they that's how we infiltrated. Now initially when we went in, it was just three of the SF guys and the four of us, and the reason that for that was the uh, 
fifth group's policy, and maybe it was a, a, a complete SF policy, but as it was explained to me, fifth group's policy was that until they could establish there were at least 500 fighters on the ground, they didn't want to commit an uh, A-team there until they knew that, you know, they had enough people there that could, you know, slug it out if they needed to. Uh, so the, an advanced element of the SF team went in with myself and Mark and the two, the two other special ops guys that were detailed to Foxtrot. And uh, we, we infiltrated Dark and Night. It was on the uh, 19th of November that we did this. And we went into the Shinrei Valley, which is uh, just across the border, only a few kilometers across the border from, from Pakistan. And that's where the base camp for uh, Shirzai was. So we infiltrated into that, uh, linked up with him and his fighters uh, that night. And we're in his base camp for a couple days making a plan as to how we were going to move forward from there. Uh, and then ultimately what we did was we moved down to Shinrei Valley and uh, did a cross-country movement to toward, toward Kandahar. And we had to capture a village along the way that was sat astride Highway 4, which was the main highway between mm-hmm. Kandahar and Pakistan. And it was being used by al-Qaeda to go back and forth. So we knew if we could cut that highway, uh, we, could, we could stop that movement going back and forth. And so our, our initial goal was to capture that village. It had a, had a small Taliban garrison there, but uh, we, of course, had, with the SF team there, bringing in air support and stuff. It wasn't close air support. It wasn't very uh, very hard to get them to decide to leave. And uh, we then uh, we moved into that into that village. And we in that those, those first couple of days, we actually did capture or kill a number of uh, Al Qaeda personnel. To include the we captured the personal driver and bodyguard to bin laden although oh, we didn't know that's okay. who, that we didn't know that's who we had at the time that's how that happened they <laughs> oh. starting to fill in some of the pieces okay um and then from there is moving down to kandahar and I, I have to ask you this question because i heard a let's say i heard a rumor that there were two agency paramilitary guys that got into a fist fight outside kandahar over who got to be the team that went in first don't know anything about that. Uh, I've never heard that. Oh, really? There were, two, there, were, there were two teams. There were two teams that were um, my team, Foxtrot team, which was coming up basically from the southeast toward Kandahar on along mm-hmm. basically along Highway Four. We had to, our our big obstacle, by the way, was the airport there in Kandahar because that was being held by Al Qaeda and and, uh, and Taliban, and it took about ten days to reduce that down so that we could get past mm-hmm. it. And uh, after we did that, we moved in, and at the same time. Echo team with the, with their uh, ODA, which was five seven four, who I'd gotten to know uh, pretty well um, uh, when we were in Pakistan, because they were I was with Echo team initially. Uh, they were coming down from the south. Now, unfortunately, I mean from the north down to from Kitarankot area to Kandahar. Um, very unfortunately, uh, a few days earlier before we moved into Kandahar, that team, the ODA, was was hit by an errant U.S. airstrike. Mm-hmm. And uh, killed, I think, three Americans. Seriously wounded a n- number of others, to include every member of the of that ODA. And uh, none of our none of our agency guys were hit. They were just down the hill from that in their little area, and so they weren't up there at the observation post where where that airstrike happened. It was a complete. Uh, it was a it was a technical error, and it wasn't their fault. It wasn't the ODA's fault, and it wasn't the Air Force's fault. It was a command and control, Special Forces command and control element that had come in the day before, and they had replaced. Now I was I wasn't there, but I talked to people who were there, and I read books about it. 
So this is this is something secondhand, but basically it was a technical error made by one of the members of that command and control element, who was uh, at the at the direction of his his commander, a major, uh, was was calling an airstrike in on some caves. They weren't under attack or anything like that, and somehow, in the in the technical process re recalibration of the instrument he was using to call those airstrikes in, he he made a technical error and it ended up calling an airstrike in directly on on their position. So that they had been hit, that team had been hit, um, and and so obviously that created all kinds of issues. I go into the book again. I, I did, because I wasn't there. I didn't want to spend a lot of time about it, but I didn't want to mention it uh, because it was very significant right. and very tragic. But uh, so they were coming down from the south. They got they got another team in to join them. Another ODA joined them, and they came down. Uh, the echo team came down as we were moving up from the southeast. There was never any fight about who was going to get there. The only reason, I, I, I and I say this in the book, I felt that head, my headquarters would have preferred if echo team had um, come in first because echo team was with Hamid Karzai, and Karzai was oh, the, I see. the big dog. But when they got hit by the by the airstrike, um, and about the same time, like a day before. Uh, they were hit, and then about the next day, we decided we thought we could get past the airfield. And Shurzai, the guy I was working with, the commander, the Afghan commander that I was working with, he he was ready to roll. He says, you know, we sent a recon element actually into Kandahar, and it looked like the, 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 they had abandoned it. So we felt like the sooner we get in there, the better. And we, um, my judgment, his judgment, and the ODA commander's judgment was, you know, the sooner we're in there, the sooner Americans are in there. And we're in in position to show that we're there, uh, the better. And so we just rolled in at that point, and it wasn't really a debate or a question to anyone like, should we go in, or should it, or should Echo Team come in? We just made the decision, informed uh, informed our headquarters, hey, we're tomorrow morning we're rolling in, and we went in just just simply to be there as soon as we could get there. And and you guys, there was, you guys there rolled no, into Kandahar no, Airfield too, right? Say again. You guys also took Kandahar Airfield. Yeah, absolutely. We we did that. That was that actually was a big obstacle for us, and and it uh, it required, like I say, we spent about ten days uh, in that little village. Uh, the ODA went out uh, and set up an OP that could look on look on the uh, air, airfield, the airport, and called in for ten days, basically called in airstrikes on that. And then there were probes being mounted by uh, Shurzai's guys. Uh, you know, there's some firefights that went on, that kind of thing. And uh, finally, uh, through the bombing, some of the guys were, you know, there were people killed, obviously, in the bombings, but some of them, I think, just, just basically kind of evaporated and, and, and pulled out and, and went away and kind of disappeared into the populace, if you will. But uh, it took about 10 days to get that to happen. And then we then we uh, rolled past the airfield and we left some, some of the Shurzai's guys occupied the airport at that point and we uh, we moved on into town and, and occupied we took over the governor's palace there in downtown Kandahar and when Echo Team got in there initially they occupied uh, Omar's Mula uh, Omar's place which is on the kind of the western uh, perimeter of the city and and that so Echo Team along with the ODA that was with them occupied that. But very quickly, that ODA and joined us. The uh, that was with Echo Team joined us, and uh, as did two other uh, ODAs come down and join us. So now we had about four ODAs, counting the one that was always with us in the Governor's Palace, and then that command and control element that had gone in and joined Karzai's group, the Echo Team. They they showed up at the palace as well. So at that point, it became 
uh, that was, finally, we got a, a, quite a number of Americans uh, together at one point. Wow. So that's how Kandahar was taken. And that became like the next, uh, I, I would think the airfield became the next, next uh, beachhead in the war, in a sense. Yeah, uh, we needed uh, we needed that you know we needed that airport to to bring in air, you know heavy aircraft and things like that and so uh, there there had been a uh, there was a marine expeditionary unit that was set up down in Helmand Province and they were they were kept on a really tight leash because uh, as as I make the point in the book uh, this whole thing like a lot of people refer to this as the U.S. invasion of uh, invasion of Afghanistan and I make the point in the book there really was no invasion. We we sent a few few teams five uh, right. or seven teams with just a handful of people, relatively speaking, to work with the Afghans who were actually the ground force on the ground. I mean they were they were the they were the surrogate force that we used, and that was that was really by design. It also uh, went along with what President Bush uh, wanted. He didn't want uh, a conventional force going into Afghanistan. And uh, but we did they did put in this marine uh, expeditionary unit that sat down there in the desert and it was kind of forming a blocking had a blocking position, and but they they didn't let them go on really offensive operations other than I, I think there were some I had a, a friend of mine an agency guy who was assigned with them who um, who was with them at the time and so they you know obviously they they did operations to pro- defensively to protect themselves but uh, they weren't they wanted to keep U.S. soldiers in uniform off the streets, if you will, right. in, in greater Afghanistan. So once we took that airfield, uh, and what we did, it, or I say we, meaning everyone there, the Marines and uh, the SF guys, uh, that airfield was turned over to the Marines. And the Marines came, we actually arranged to bring them around in the dark of night, again, trying to keep the U.S. profile low. In the dark of night, when everyone, on, the Afghans would be asleep, led them around the, you know, gu- guided them around. The Afghans went out with us and guided them around the, the perimeter of, of the city of Kandahar to get them to the airfield so that the populace wasn't aware that there was now basically a conventional force of U.S. soldiers in, uh, in, in Afghanistan. And then, so they took, over, they took over the duties for that, responsibilities for that uh, airport. At that time, the Marines did. I was wondering if you could elaborate a little bit for us, because there's a lot of people out there who I think don't necessarily understand the distinctions. If you could talk a little bit about um, the CIA paramilitary aspect and special forces. I mean, it, it, for a lot of people, I think they see this as like a, um, a duplication of the same capabilities. If you could talk a little bit about the differences between the two and, and perhaps the relationship together as well. Yeah, uh, sure. Well, well, there to a certain extent there is a, a duplication there in that the, the guys that come into the agency as paramilitary officers, I've only heard of one person who became a paramilitary officer. Uh, at least this was a few years ago. Maybe that's changed. Who wasn't? Who did not come out of the military? Often, although not always, they come out of special operations units, whether it's the SEALs, Delta, Special Forces, Rangers, Force Re- Marine Force Recon, or whatever. But not always. Sometimes they're just you know straight leg infantry out of you know the Army or whatever uh, that come in. And also, some Air Force guys come in uh, as well. So they 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 have a lot of they what comes into the paramilitary element of the agency are a lot of guys who have you know very highly you know they're very highly skilled in these special operations uh you know capabilities and so they they're and they know a lot of the people that are still back in the active military of course because they've you know been with them through most of their career they don't always have they won't always have completed a full career 
Uh, I would say probably most of them haven't completed a full career, but a number of them have in the military before joining the agency. But some of them may only have you know five years in with the with the military. So you have the duplication in terms of their skill sets uh, is there. The, it's where it's a mission that gets a little different. Um, and, th- and that gets into authorities of the different agencies, mm-hmm. you know, what DOT, DOD authorities are, what agency authorities are. Um, often, I mean, the paramilitary guys can do a lot of the same things that uh, Special Forces uh, ODA could do or what members of a SEAL team could do or whatever. But they're, the, the mission is a little different. Um, sometimes the military can be used in, in certain certain missions because um, it's not a, a mission that is going to be acknowledged by the by the U.S. government, and so it's those you know that falls more into a covert action sort of thing. Mm-hmm. And when that happens, they can't use they, they can't use military is basically prohibited. Uh, with some exceptions, they can be authorized. So I don't get that wrong, but but generally speaking, the agency is responsible for for uh, covert action, and uh, and, the, and so because the military is really kind of prescribed from some of this stuff, we need a capability that has the same kind of uh, skill set as the military does, but that can go in and do these these missions that are really determined by that are really determined by um, the the, the the, what, under what authorities is the this mission being carried out under? Is it is it a covert action authority or is it an overt? Uh, what would be a Title Ten, which is you know standard U.S. military, whereas Title Fifty uh, is is more for uh, covert action type uh, capabilities. But I mean, the Afghanistan campaign wasn't exactly. I mean, it was on CNN every day. It wasn't necessarily yeah, covert. I mean, why 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 this blend? Why this combination of paramilitary and U.S. Special Forces? Well, uh, it gets into one, uh, the agency had already had a relationship with, with a lot of the, the Afghan commanders that we were going to be working with, mm-hmm. and we already had the relationship with them. And so we, we put, uh, in, especially the first team that went, it was initially all agency. Uh, the military, surprisingly, uh, within DOD, they had some difficulty um, getting the first uh, SF team deployed. Uh, and I don't, I don't know all the ins and outs of it. It was some sort of, you know, bureaucratic process, I guess, that, that caused some delays. But um, initially, that first element that went in was all, all agency. And again, it went in under, it went under uh, title, it went in under Title Fifty, uh, and not Title Ten. Mm-hmm. And that's, that's why now, now, it's similar like you know the, uh, the mission to uh, do the uh, raid on Bin Laden. That was done by, of course, by by the Navy SEALs, but the uh, overall authority for it was um, was actually done under CIA's auspices, right. and that gets back into these authorities and stuff like that. So there is dupl- duplication, but the agency guys, like paramilitary guys, in addition to their military hard skills, they also have they also are trained up as as agency officers, uh, which means that they understand intelligence, they know how to re- write an intelligence report, they know how to handle an uh, intelligence asset. You know, they know how to recruit intelligence asset, um, that kind of thing. So it's a, it's kind of a, a cross fertilization, if you will, uh, that they you take that hard hard military skills and then the skills of a of a the kind of the bread and butter skills of a of a of what like I was a case officer. And you br- blend those two together, and that's a, really the perfect type of person to put into uh, an environment like Afghanistan. 
And I, I would just add that, you know, there's some doctrine, uh, military doctrine that backs some of this up as well, because, you know, when you go through special forces training, you go through the Robin Sage exercise, mm-hmm. it's kind of understood or um, taught that there would be some CIA case officer on the ground in the country that you're infiltrating, and they will be able to link you up with the guerrilla movement, or at least there'll be some pre-existing relationship, which is really exactly what you're talking about in Afghanistan. Yeah, that's exactly right. And it's just because, just like in Afghanistan, I mean, it was really the agency's responsibility to maintain relationships with the the players, if you will, in Afghanistan. Um, You know, we got involved with them back in the day of, and I'm sure, you know, you you probably talked to a few people about this, and Jack Devine may even talked about it a bit, Uh, the the whole earlier effort in Afghanistan when we were supporting the Mujahideen, uh, trying to get uh, the Russians out of the country. And so we had maintained, basically going back to that far, relationships with people there, um, and it, that was an agency responsibility. The military wasn't wasn't tasked to do that. That wasn't their job, but it was our job. And so we were kind of, again, we kind of own. I don't want to make this sound like a turf issue, but it, but to put it, you know, it, it was like agency kind of owned those relationships, just because that was right. what our our job was. And so we definitely uh, had to. Uh, had to be there. We had to, you know, to make those kind of introductions. We had to present ourselves, of course, when we dealt with these um, Afghan leaders, just like I did with, with Shirzai. Uh, you know, the, the ODA that was with our team, you know, we had to be a united front. He had to see us as one one team, and that, and, it's, and it was. I mean, something that couldn't be, you know, he couldn't play me off against the ODA team leader, that kind of thing. We had to come across as we were all one and we're, we're there to help him, but we were all one. And, uh, and I will say that was kind of the, kind of the greatest thing about, uh, that experience I had in Afghanistan, at least in that part, in that time frame, And that was how well everyone got along. I mean, there was, there was just no, there was no light between us, between the ODAs and, and the, and the agency teams. We all understood why we were there. We all worked to the same goal. Uh, for the most part, there was really no personality, uh, you know, hurdles that couldn't be overcome. And uh, it was just a, it was just a beautiful thing. Now, if, um, you know, correct me if my timeline is off, but you were in Kandahar. And was this around the same time that the JSOC element was kicking off, um, you know, the Operation Anaconda and all of that against um, to go after bin Laden? That uh, I always get confused with that one happened in January or uh, it would happen in December. I can't remember when that operation happened. Uh, It it was hmm, there were two operations that happened around that time. And I have lost the timeline on it, honestly. But it, it was it was near that time frame. It may have happened after I left. If it happened in January, I would have uh, had not been there. It was there was something that happened in December. And I can't remember if it was Anaconda or something else, uh, and I would have been I would have been in Kandahar at that point. Yeah, because I remember when I, someone was telling me about how when JSOC came down from Bagram, there was a guy, um, it, may, it may have been one of your guys who was the liaison from Delta um, to OGA, and he went and met up with the Delta element that rolled in, escorted them into the safe house in Kandahar, and then they rolled out to, uh, what was it, Tora Bora, I think, the next night. That could have been because uh, we because I know uh, one of our officers uh, did it you know go actually went from 
from Kandahar and, and went to support that effort. Uh, so that could have been what you're referring to. And uh, I just, it wasn't on my team. It was on, it came off of Echo team. Mm -hmm. So um, I just can't remember if I was there for Anaconda or if that happened after I left. I, I just can't remember the dates of when Anaconda were. I'm sorry. Yeah, no, no, of course. I was just curious. Uh, so do you want to pick up the story from there and tell us about, you know, what happened with Foxtrot after uh, Kandahar and Kandahar Airfield? Yeah, I mean, really, the main goal was uh, to get into Kandahar. That was mm -hmm. what we wanted to do to, to basically throw the Taliban out, smash Al Qaeda, and get into Kandahar because we felt that, uh, in addition to just the, that military goal in and of itself, we would have a there, there's likely to be a lot of intelligence to be gleaned out of that to, to that we could find documentation and hopefully captures. Of, of Al Qaeda members, that kind of thing, where we would get a, a whole bunch of uh, intel out of it. So our, our first, our first goal, really, once we got in there, we already had a, a target list, if you would, if you will, that was uh, something that had been provided to us by our headquarters, that said, hey, these locations, we have good intel. These are Al Qaeda, Al -Qaeda safe houses, and um, so we had to. Uh, the mission was to go and uh, raid those those. Um, safe houses. Now, by the time we got in there, we figured chances are the uh, Al-Qaeda presence is gone. They probably have beat feet out of there because we knew they had been trying to get out of the city and we're having some success, success at it, uh, even as we were trying to get into the city. So um, we immediately started raiding these, these uh, safe houses. And, uh, and also we had some volunteers come in as well. And w one of those volunteers brought in, not Al-Qaeda, by the way, but uh, an Afghan came in, and um, he gave us a, a whole bunch of documents of which uh, probably the biggest the biggest intelligence uh, find we got out of that, that effort in Kandahar was a plan to include the, the video casings, sketches, uh, you name it, of a planned attack on the USS Carl Vinson to, that was to take place in Singapore. And as you know, the Carl Vinson is a uh, nuclear-powered aircraft carrier, mm -hmm. and they one. The, but fortunately, also contained within that material for that attack were the cell phone numbers of the Al Qaeda members who were going to carry out that attack. Or Sixteen <laughs> of them. Wow! Bad so, opsec Al Qaeda. <laughs> so that that got um, that. Of course, we sent that out immediate president's message, and uh, and it and it took a couple of months, but. But the authorities there and whoever else was involved with working with them, assuming the FBI and, and others, uh, they, uh, they rounded up those guys and they neutralized that uh, planned attack. So that was huge. That could have been a, a major disaster force uh, for the U.S. had that attack taken place. So that was probably the single most important intelligence find we got out of there. We, there were some other less important but yet significant things. We also found the document. Uh, the application form that Jose Padilla, the dirty bomber, had filled out to join Al Qaeda. Holy shit! And that and that was used in court against him. Uh, in fact, Mark, my teammate, uh, would a couple years later ha would testify in disguise at his trial as to the chain of custody of that document that we had seized. And so, you know, he was he was convicted in part because of that that information. Wow. So that, that was that, that was probably the the, the, the biggest intel um, 
things we did that uh, we gleaned out of out of capturing Kandahar. But the, you know, of course, strategically, the big big important thing was that Taliban was no longer in power there, and Al Qaeda was no longer effectively uh, running operations from from there. And at that point, did the the mission shift from that to looking for Bin Laden? Uh, yeah, that was always, you know, of course, we were always looking for bin Laden uh, from the get-go. And uh, and so, yeah, it became more of a focus uh, effort to, uh, to, you know, there were still pockets of uh, resistance throughout the country and to include some al-Qaeda guys running around, but they weren't, you know, an effective, they weren't an effective organization anymore at that point. And so those those, those things had to be pursued. But um, the... And I, I frankly, I left. Uh, my goal, my division had said, yeah, I could stay with the counterterrorist center uh, for a few few more months, but then they wanted me back to come back to uh, any division. And I was, I actually came taken out of there or told to come home a little bit earlier than I had expected or planned for. And so I left after uh, after we'd captured Kandahar. Within a within a couple of weeks, I was I was back back in in Washington. But the mission at that point. You know, became more in, into looking at more uh, st- helping to stabilize the area. Of course, of course, uh, the plans were already in place to bring in a lot more U.S. military, and uh, also within the agency to increase our presence there quite a bit. Uh, so things kind of shifted gears. You know, the initial mission was to go in there and, and smash Al Qaeda, and the reason we got involved with the Taliban simply was because they stood in our way. You know, they were protecting the the Al Qaeda elements there. And had it not been for that, if they had stood aside or if they'd even helped us on it, they might be in power today. But <laughs> seriously, but I mean, really, we were just really concerned about Al Qaeda. That's all we really wanted. But we had to deal with ta- Taliban to, to deal with Al Qaeda. So, um, you know, then it became more of a, I think that's where things started to morph into what became more of a nation building exercise, which was something that President Bush ex- explicitly said it wasn't going yeah. to become. Uh, but it did. Well, do, what do you do? You think that was the right decision to bring all the additional troops in the country and uh, and to stick around the way we did? Well, I think initially, I think yes, initially to bring some more troops in, yes, to help stabilize things. I, I think that probably was had to be done. I, I think though that didn't. I think what what happened was there's just this momentum that came with that. That you know, and people, you know, Americans and others are. You know, good-hearted people. They want they wanted to see the best for Afghanistan. They knew Afghanistan had been in a, a bad way for a long time, and so I think there's a momentum there that just got going about. Oh, we need to help them, and uh, and I even supported that, frankly, because I got you know I like for instance I, I talk about my book. I got to even though it was only briefly, only for like ten days with Echo Team. I got to know Karzai, and I really respected the guy, and I really was impressed with him and uh I re- he had high hopes for his country and i really wanted those hopes to come true so i i, I did kind of support that myself but not so much the longer term and effort in terms of what it's become i was hoping that afghans would be able to stand up on their own two feet a lot sooner than what has happened and i think that's where we you know trying to make that decision on okay at what point do we start drawing back what point do we start drawing back that's where it gets tricky, and uh, you know we, we we tended to push in the direction of okay we're having problems let's let's put more troops in let's you know throw more money into the aid that kind of things and I, I, without necessarily fully reflecting on on what kind of country Afghanistan is right it, it's a 
as you know, it's a very poor, very ethnically divided country. Tribal society. Yeah, it doesn't have a doesn't have a history of a central government, a strong, effective central government. I think we were just a bit naive about what we could actually accomplish. And uh, I mean, this is an incredible story, and I mean, I really thank you for sharing it with us today. Um, and, and from that point, for you, what, what was it going back home? And uh, you know, what were your next steps after yeah. uh, the Kandahar yeah. mission? Well, I went back, and I, I thought at that point, when I got back, I knew I wasn't going to be with Counterterrorist Center any longer. Uh, I knew I was going back to any division, but I didn't have a, have the job lined up. I thought I'd probably end up going back, to, going to the FBI, which is I was originally going to go to the FBI uh, under the auspices of any division, Near East Division. But uh, and I thought, well, I'll finally get to do that job that I was supposed to do back in uh, earlier in the fall. But um, they, when I got back, they they said, hey, we would like you to. Uh, Stand up a new a new branch, if you will, new office uh, that had had responsibilities within any any division for Afghanistan. It wasn't the CT mission. It was uh, earlier up until that point. For years, we had not had any office supporting a station in in Afghanistan right. because we didn't have a station in Afghanistan for many years. And and now with the the turn of events after 9/11 and the fall of the Taliban. Uh, in, a, in a better environment, we were going to have a station in, in Afghanistan. So um, that office I stood up was to support that station. That station, you know, ultimately would become the, the biggest station the CIA had in the world uh, <laughs> until until Iraq, until Iraq came along. Then then that changed. <laughs> but uh, that's a different story. Uh, anyway, so I, I, I worked on I worked on I continued to be involved in Afghan things there for another couple of years. Um, after I came back from uh, Afghanistan, just from a headquarters environment. I mean, I did go back. I didn't go back to Afghanistan once and went to Pakistan once, but uh, uh, I pretty much was at, at headquarters at that point. So the book, once again, is Foxtrot and Kandahar, a memoir of a CIA officer in Afghanistan at the inception of America's longest war. It's actually Dwayne's second book. Uh, you could visit DwayneEvans.com. Anything else you want to get out there before we uh, wrap this up with you? No, uh, not at all. The book's available on all the sellers. It's available in electronic format, too, if anyone's interested in it. And uh, I do appreciate the, the opportunity to talk to you guys. It's been a real pleasure, and I, and I really support uh, your program. Thank you. Yeah, we, we appreciate having you on. I mean, like I said, this is one of those rare looks into paramilitary operations. And, I mean, I think this is books like this are great because they're an eye-opener. I mean, not just for me, but for you know, John Q. Public, you know, I think it's important for people to understand, you know, where their tax money is going. And we hope that the public supports these capabilities. Yeah, absolutely. I, I hope I was hoping my book would be read by not just a military oriented audience, but also by kind of a larger uh, general public audience. If, if that would be possible, I thought that might be useful. Well, our our audience, I will say, I mean, and getting to know them over the past few years, there's a good split there. Yeah, it's a good mix of people. Great, great. Well, thank thank you again. All right, yeah, thank you. And I hope we talk again soon. All right, thank you. Thanks. We'll talk to you later. Then. All right, take care. Thanks. All right, bye bye. So we went uh, pretty in depth there with uh, with Dwayne. That was great. Yeah. Uh, once again, pick up the book Foxtrot in Kandahar. Um, so I didn't get to talk to you about this during the intro. Figured I would tell you. I finally have checked out some of Tesla's Death Ray. Oh, you saw the uh, show. 
Yeah. Well, you know what it was is, so I live in Port Washington. I, my parents are in Manhasset where I grew up, which is like literally right next door. It's a two minute drive from me. So I'll go over there sometimes, do my laundry there. Even though I actually have a washing machine at my house, but they have like a bigger room where I could hang dry stuff. Anyway, I'll go over there, do some laundry and I put on like IO on demand just while I'm showing there. And I was like, oh, they have uh, Tesla's death ray on demand. And I finally checked some of that out. It is an extremely well done show. The thing that was interesting to me more than anything was that, like, for example, had you have not been able to go to that museum, meet with someone, get your hands on the actual documents, this would end up being a pretty lackluster show. Yeah. And like there was no guarantee that you would get that opportunity well the the we also built or i should say uh aaron built that death ray on which Texas, is the most remarkable thing which on the show is, that's the uh, most impressive i, I of still all of it. i still haven't seen the last episode but that was really cool but other than that yeah i agree the documents and getting those never before seen documents out of the museum in belgrade was really cool but what i mean it's like what would discovery have done if they flew you all the way out to belgrade you know and you just could not get there because well, that's it seems very likely that that well, you wouldn't and this isn't a pre-scripted show so well yes and no i okay. mean there's some television magic happening behind <laughs> the scenes i mean the producers had been they scouted out belgrade and I, I believe they had done some things to help butter up the museum a little bit. So, okay. I mean, we had some idea that we were going to have some access when we went in there. Um, I love when the woman was like, don't touch. Don't oh, touch yeah, the she's, getting, she's getting upset with me. I was like, no, I'm not going to touch them. Don't worry. She was very nice. Um, but, yeah, having those documents was, uh, was really cool. And it was really exciting to see those. I mean, like pictures, the drawings that Tesla had did in his own hand. And, I mean, when you look at them, you know exactly what you're looking at the second you see them. Yeah. Yeah, this guy was amazing. And I, and I think that you did a great job, you know, basically doing something outside of your usual comfort zone, I guess you would say. Yeah. Of yeah. hosting a program like this. And I, I dug it. And, and for people wondering, yeah, if you have, like, IO or a lot of digital on-demand cable services, you'll be able to check out all yeah. the episodes. Yeah, I, I still have to see the um, the last episode of it. There's a, my friend, uh, actually my co-star on the show, uh, Cameron. Yeah. He posted a picture of the death ray um, blowing up. One of, we blow up some drones, and uh, it's, it's basically a giant Tesla coil. And uh, my daughter sees a picture, and she's like, Daddy, is that the death ray? I'm <laughs> like, it sure is, little girl. <laughs> so, the, the guy putting it together <laughs> is uh, Aaron, right? Aaron, yeah. See, to me, what he does is the most remarkable thing in the show. Like, it's funny that you and Cameron are the stars of the show because, you know, look, I, I respect what you do as an investigative journalist and all that. But this guy, I'm like, holy shit, to put this thing together, I wouldn't know the first thing of what to do. That's actually like his full-time job. That's what he does is he builds Tesla coils um, for museums. Um, he's done them for like rock concerts and stuff like that. People want like special effects. Yeah. So, um, and I, I think that one he built, it was 25 feet high, I think. And um, I, I think it worked even better than he thought it would. Like, I don't think he, he, was so sure it was going to work the first time we fired it up. But, um, and it did take a little bit of messing around with, you know, um, to calibrate it. And you'd have to talk to Aaron to get all the, the technical details of it. But um, when we, we put the, we te I remember we tested it and the, it started firing out, you know, bolts of lightning essentially start electricity and it's like, okay, it's working. Uh, got the drone up and I mean, flew the drone right in front of it and 
boom, first time it went. So that's awesome. Yeah, I think we blew up two drones that night. Not, I mean, they both went went up immediately. You know, so it was pretty cool. So yeah, if you're like me and waited to check it out, go check out Tesla's Death Ray: A Murder Declassified. Um, it's on demand for a lot of uh, people. And I wanted to get to this email as well because it was an interesting one. So uh, Kurt and I talked pretty in-depth about the gun issue last week. I mean, it was a shorter episode because I was in here with uh, Jarek Robbins, the son of Tony Robbins, for like three hours, and I was ready to get out of here. Um, But anyway, so this is from Ryan. Hey, guys, enjoyed the show the other day. My buddy and I were kicking around an idea the other day that I thought I'd share with you guys. In this country lately, we seem to have a deadlock on any meaningful gun reform. Meanwhile, the problems aren't being solved. We fear if no progress or compromises can be made, school shootings will continue, which will push more and more people toward a ban. And we don't believe that needs to be the solution. What we had, what if we had one federal standard for gun licenses? You would have to submit a criminal and mental health background check and take a safety course for proper and safe handling and operation of a firearm. This could be waived by military, police, or gun range professional training. Once you have the license, you can buy anything you want, automatic, suppressed, etc., and carry it open or concealed anywhere in the U.S. You would need to renew the license periodically, say every four years, for example. I feel that this addresses concerns from the left about the ease of getting guns and how the process can differ from state to state. It would also respect gun owners on the right uh, on the right, who realize if you have no intention of murdering people, it doesn't matter what gun you own. If you guys think this idea could go somewhere, please bring it up on the next broadcast. I really do believe, as Americans, we can come up with suitable compromise. It doesn't necessarily have to come from Washington. Love the show. Keep up the good work. That's from Ryan. Sent once again to softrep.radio at softrep.com. I check all the emails. Um, I absolutely appreciate you uh, checking out the show personally, and I want to hear your take. I do not think this would be realistic. Yeah, I think there's actually some constitutional issues involved. Yeah, for one, to have a federal gun law like that, yeah, with open carry... The the whole idea of of you know having a constitutional republic is that state to state you have very different laws and this isn't a popular thing to say in this day and age right now but for the most part I'm fine with the gun laws the way that they are I think we just need to enforce the actual laws um, you know uh, uh, like I think if Chicago wants to pretty much get have no Second Amendment rights for that city. That's their right to do. Well, like I think that, well, there's there's limitations on that too. You can't ban no the but, Second Amendment. But it's just about it's it's, it's just about cool, eradicated yeah, yeah. in Chicago as it is in New York City for the most part, and that is a state's rights issue. Just like you know, if you don't like it, move to Texas, move to Florida. I and I entirely agree with that. Yeah, I mean, I understand the logic of it. Like somebody was telling me, uh, I was at a at somebody's house visiting, and they were like, you know. Um, we should have a, a federal concealed carry permit. And I was like, and I was like, you know, it's not a bad idea because like you have a concealed carry permit in, you know, one state and then you travel to New York and suddenly you're getting arrested, you know, because you're not in compliance with state laws and, and uh, having a federal concealed carry permit, you know, you go and take some tests and now you're federal quote unquote federally qualified and you carry your concealed firearm wherever you want in the country. I understand the logic behind that, but you but know, if this guy thinks that the left would be in any way satisfied by that, or no, the they left wouldn't. No. would say, "Oh yeah, you, you could uh, open carry a uh, 
automatic weapon, there is absolutely no way that they would be like, oh, this is a fair compromise. And I'm not trying to be demeaning to the email. It's just I I don't see it being realistic. I mean, it depends what you mean when you say the left. I mean, I think there are Democrats out there who are, are willing to compromise. But there are also tons of people out there who, yeah, they do want a gun ban. Yeah. And that's it. And that's why I hear all this talk about banning the AR-15. And I'm just like... If you know anything about firearms, you know that doesn't make sense. Yeah. And banning AR-15, like there are many other semi-automatic weapons out there you could use. Um, and ma- most mass shootings are conducted with pistols. So you know you ban the AR-15, and then, you know, the statistics clearly show most people aren't being killed with AR-15s. So now you it's got to... Yeah. Now, you're, now what are we going to after this? So then we're going to have to ban all semi-automatic weapons? Are we going back down that road? Well, I think that could be a lot of people on the anti-gun left strategy. Is, you know, you slowly chip away, no AR-15s, I believe then we go is. after handguns, then we go, is. yeah. That's uh, it's what a lot of people believe. And also another problem I had with the email um, was when you said that with the mental health stuff, you would waive it for military... Uh, let me just go back to what you actually said, uh, Ryan. Oh, yeah, you would have, you have to submit to a criminal and mental health background check and take a safety course for proper and safe handling. Um, this could be waived by military police. All right, so my problem is, I mean, it's just a fact that a lot of people who do have the mental health issues are former military. So why would they be waived from that? Yeah, I mean, that's the thing when you get into this whole mental health issue. And, and I do believe we should do better with... And we can do better with some sort of like mental health screening or something like that. But we do have to be thoughtful and deliberate about that, because like if, uh, you know, if, if a guy for just who decides who is mentally that's Ill, my biggest problem. You know, so my, how's that going to work? Yeah, my because I feel like if we're keeping it out of the hands of people who are truly mentally ill, absolutely agree with that. But then what if. You know, what if, let's say you, Jack Murphy, who's a veteran, sees a therapist and you say something to the effect of, and this is not true, but you say, I have anger issues sometimes. Right. I, I just, yeah. I, I feel violent sometimes. And and what if your therapist is someone who's on the anti-gun left and wants to, you know, it, well, put it, something it, it out there? It and, wouldn't even be that. It would be, there'd be something that would federally mandate, you know, it's like if you go and you tell your therapist... I'm thinking of like shooting up a school. The therapist has a legal requirement to report. But then once again, slippery slope. What about if, if you're, if the therapist patient just says, I'm an angry person. Sometimes I sometimes want to do something violent. Is that a threat? I mean, it it could be, um, but a lot of people feel that way and they're, they don't act on it. Yeah, of course. Um, so yeah, I do think, it's a difficult issue. I think we can do better with it, and I think we can take steps to work to um, say, look, this person is so mentally impaired, psychologically impaired, that they should not be able to buy a firearm. I think there's got to be some way we can do it and some way we can do better, but we do have to be careful about it at the same time that we, we I don't go around just labeling people mentally ill. I yeah. mean, that's that's very concerning. And I, and I just, I do think that there should be a different state to state. I think that's part of like that you move to a state because the laws are more in, in tune of what you want. There's, there's a lot of people who are not informed that'll say that like, if we have a Supreme Court justice who gets rid of Roe versus Wade, that abortion will be completely illegal. That's not the case. It would actually be more like the gun laws in America where if New York wants to have very easy access to abortions, then that would be their law. If Texas wants to make it harder to get an abortion, that would be their law. I actually do like the 
states' rights way of doing things. Yeah, right so there. do I. I am more of a states' rights kind of guy. Yeah. Um, I know, like, people get all butthurt about that. Oh, but. especially the people on the far left who will, who will say that you're then for slavery or something ridiculous. <laughs> <sighs> Man, I, I can't. I can't even engage with so many people. Talk politics, whether they're left wing or right wing, because it's just like, it's exhausting. Yeah. Yep, I agree, and that's why I really don't accept with uh, you guys when I do this podcast and a few other reasonable people. Um, what else did I want to mention here? Um, I guess that's really about it. I mean, we have some great guests coming up. I don't want to ruin some of them because, like, one of them in particular. You know who I'm talking about has been highly uh, requested by the listeners. So we have a bunch of great guests uh, yeah. coming up over the next month. Yep, and people from all different walks of life, I'll say. Um, so wrapping things up here, as a reminder for all of those who are listening, for a limited time, you can receive a 50% discounted membership to SoftRep TV, our channel that offers the most exclusive shows, documentaries, and interviews covering the most exciting military content today. SoftRep TV's premier show, Training Cell, follows former Special Operations Forces as they participate in the most advanced training in the country. Everything from shooting schools, defensive driving, jungle and winter warfare, climbing, and much more. Again, you can watch this content by subscribing to SoftRep TV. It's at softreptv.us. And take advantage of a limited time offer of 50% off your membership only $4.99 a month. And if you haven't gotten a chance to check out the SoftRep Crate Club, you're definitely going to want to do that ASAP. It's a subscription to get a box of badass tactical and survival gear delivered to your door every month. Here's the kicker. All of the gear is handpicked and tested by former special ops guys, so you know you're getting quality gear that's going to work when you need it to. Crates we've sent in the past have included gear like custom knives, multi-tools, fire starters, EDC med kits, and other kick-ass stuff. You don't just get great gear with your subscription. You're also supporting a veteran-owned and run company. To subscribe and start getting your gear, visit CrateClub.us. We also have gift options available. That's CrateClub.us. Last things I wanted to mention before we get out of here. Uh, Yesterday was actually the 25th anniversary of the 1993 attack on the World Trade Center. Um, Wow, yeah. Yes, I posted something about that. Uh, which, you know, people did unfortunately die in. And, you know, not to the level of 9-11, of course, but there were attacks prior to 9-11. It was the precursor to 9-11. They were hoping that they were going to be able to collapse one tower into the other. Yeah. Um, So rest in peace to those who died and wanted to recognize that. And then the other thing, I took down a lot of the older episodes because prior, I took them off SoundCloud and iTunes. Prior, we were doing that thing where it was for subscribers and we had certain episodes that were, like, cut in half. I figured it was a lot easier. Just go to softrep.com slash radio, and you can listen to all those episodes in their entirety. So if there's a back episode you don't see on iTunes um, or SoundCloud or wherever you listen, just go to softrep.com slash radio, and every episode from one on is there. And there's a lot of stuff. I mean, Marcus Luttrell was on the podcast before I was ever even here. Um We've had some really cool guests. Uh, Montel Williams, that was an interesting one. <laughs> I'd like to get him on at some point uh, again. but he Because he's a, a military vet who seems, you know, he doesn't consider himself to the left, but a lot of people seem to label him that way. He certainly was not a Trump supporter and was very vocal about it. 
Oh, really? Oh, yeah, yeah. He openly uh, voted for Hillary Clinton, was pretty vocal about it, and a lot of people on the right went, went after him. But he's uh, he was an interesting guest. The thing about him is he... He gets very emotional during, like, every interview, including the one we did with him. Yeah, yeah, you can see it. It's always right beneath the surface. Yeah, I mean, and, and I think it's genuine. I think he's very passionate about veterans' issues. Yeah, so. yeah, I think so, too. Yeah. All right, um, anything else before we uh, wrap this up? No, I think that's it for now. Um, Check out Tiger Swan if you haven't read it already. It's a very long, in-depth article. You're holding a I, bunch of documents that you probably can't talk about. I No, I'm not going to talk about what's in them, but I have a bunch of documents in my hands, which will be a future story on a different topic. Cool. It's going right. to be interesting, to say the least. And uh, Brandon will be back next episode for a special appearance with Rob O'Neill, if everything goes accordingly. So he should be here. Uh All right, guys, as always, leave a review on Apple Podcasts. Follow us on Twitter, Instagram, at SoftRepRadio. You can follow Jack at JackMurphyRGR on Twitter, at JackMcMurph on Instagram. And if you go to Jack McMurph on Instagram, you find me on there. You get to see all my uh, Dungeons & Dragons photos with uh, with my daughter. Yeah, so you kind of keep it separate from all the spec ops stuff. I, I'm, I'm just like at that point in my life, like I don't feel the need to post like gym pics and like me wearing camouflage. Like I don't feel the need to showboat and like prove how tough I am all the time. You know, it's <laughs> it's not that kind of special operations dude, bro Instagram account that you probably normally find. Like I just don't give a shit anymore. Dungeons and Dragons. Yeah, we're, we're gonna, it's like that. It's like stupid stuff I've done. You'll see like pictures of me on vacation. I mean, it's nothing that exciting. (laughs) You've been listening to Soft Rep Radio. New episodes up every Wednesday and Friday. For all of the great content from our veteran journalists, join us and become a team room member today at softrep.com. Follow the show on Instagram and Twitter at Soft Rep Radio. And be sure to also check out the Power of Thought podcast, hosted by Hurricane Group CEO and Navy SEAL sniper instructor, Brandon Webb.